Turn with me to Matthew 5. We started looking last week at verses 21 to 26, or two weeks ago actually. Uh, And uh, so I want to uh, do some review of this passage and then continue on with the uh, instruction. Let me uh, uh, read the passage again and then we will uh, get started. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, murder occurs all the time. As we said last week, there are about 45 murders every day in our nation. Uh, And so it's a very serious problem, not only in our nation, but in the world, and it's getting worse all the time. Uh, And then there's another form of murder, suicide, uh, which is, of course, taking a life. Uh, There's about 132 of those every day in our nation. And uh, that doesn't account for abortion either, the murder of unborn babies. Uh, We have about 1,600 of those per, I'm I'm sorry, 600,000 of those per year, about 1,700 per day. Uh, Just tragic. Uh, Since abortion has been legalized in 1973, there have been at least 60 million babies murdered. So the number of murders in our nation is absolutely staggering. And in certain other countries, the murder rates far exceed those here in the United States. It's far more common than many people think it is. And in the first of the six illustrations of heart righteousness that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, he deals with the sin of murder. As we said before, murder is the first crime recorded in the Bible. Genesis 4.8 says, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then later on in Genesis, after the flood, when God was sending out Noah and his family to repopulate the world, God specifically told them, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Uh, For in the image of God he made man. So from the very beginning, murder is seen by God as an assault on his image. Murder isn't simply the killing of another human being. It is an assault on the very image of God himself. And so God authorized capital punishment for those who commit murder because man is made in the image of God. Now, when God said, you shall not murder in Exodus 20, he didn't prohibit every form of killing a human being. The term which is used there uh, refers to the criminal killing of a person. That is a murder. It doesn't refer to capital punishment, obviously, because God specifically authorized that for murderers. Uh, It doesn't refer to a just war. A just war is a war which is intended to destroy those who are committing crimes against humanity. Uh, 
Uh, there are both just and unjust wars. As, as I said last time, we're not going to debate which war is which, but uh, no, just note there are wars which fulfill God's plan for justice against those who commit crimes against humanity. Uh, so it's clear from Scripture that God isn't talking about accidental murder, uh, the accidental killing of another person. In fact, in Numbers 35, God had the Israelites set up the six cities of refuge where someone who accidentally kills someone could flee from those who were out to avenge the blood of the one who killed, they ki was killed. Uh, so God does not require the death penalty for every kind of murder, uh, but in specifically in that case, accidental murder. Uh, what the Bible is talking about is planned murder or a, mur or a murder of passion. And so what we saw last week is from the very beginning in the book of Genesis with the very first recorded human crime and all through and on into God's law, it's all through the Pentateuch, murder is a biblical issue. And we know how God feels about it. It's forbidden. It's punishable by death. It's a, the manifestation of an evil human heart. Uh, Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders. Uh, Romans 1, 28, 29 says that because mankind did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And one of the things he says, they're full of murders. Uh, man is a murderer because he has a depraved mind uh, that has been given over to evil because he rejects God. So murder is a crime authored by the devil, and it's a crime that comes out of the evil, depraved human heart. Now in verse 21, Jesus says, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And at that point, the scribes and the Pharisees would have said, Amen. We agree. We're against murder. We, we know that's what the law says, that was given to our forefathers. They taught us the same thing. Murder is an evil thing. In fact, they thought that as long as they didn't actually physically kill someone, uh, they were righteous. And they thought we wouldn't murder anybody. We would never murder anyone. Therefore, we must be righteous. We have kept the law of God. And that's precisely the point that Jesus wants to attack them. Because back in verse 20, what did he say? He said, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. They said, if we don't murder, we're righteous. Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that. Not murdering is not enough. Uh, and he begins to attack their, their self-confidence uh, by charging that no one is truly innocent of murder. Because the first step in murder is anger. The anger that lies behind the murder, anger which many people think is really not a sin, is one of the worst of sins. And to one degree or another, it makes all of us would-be murderers. And so Jesus says that regardless of whether or not murder is committed outwardly or not, it affects us in three ways. It, first, it affects our view of ourselves. Secondly, it affects our view, our worship of God. And third, it affects our relationship with others. Now, we talked about the effect on our view of ourselves, and his words just shatter the illusion of their own self-righteousness here. Uh, they thought they were righteous because they didn't commit murder. And Jesus reiterates the truth that their religious system of Judaism had passed down the tradition that so long as you fulfill the law's requirements of not actually killing someone, 
you're okay. Now, what the priest, what the ancient people were told was biblical. The first phrase there, you shall not commit murder, there in verse 21, is directly out of Exodus 20, 13. So there's no question that that is biblical. They're right at that point. But the point Jesus is making here is it doesn't go far enough. He says, you've only taken a part of God's law and you're only partially interpreted it and then satisfied yourself that by keeping your partial interpretation, you're therefore righteous. And so their interpretation of the sixth commandment was very simple. They don't murder because if you do, you're going to get in trouble with the law. That was their idea. Uh, but what about God's holy character? They never mentioned it. They, they didn't, it didn't even enter the discussion. They had made God's commandment into nothing more than a legal matter. They said nothing about the heart. Uh, and yet, all the way back, remember God's words to Samuel? He said, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. With God, it's always a matter of the heart. Uh, and so uh, they had left out the internal part. And so Jesus simply says that it isn't an issue of murder alone. It's an issue of anger and hatred in your heart. You can't justify yourself because you haven't committed the physical act of murder. Murder goes much deeper than that. It originates in the heart, not in the hands. And it starts with evil thoughts, regardless of whether or not those thoughts are ever brought to fruition. And we do this all the time. Uh, we say, I'm no murderer. I'm not one of those kind of people. I'd never do that. And yet sometimes we get so angry on the inside with someone. We mock and deride others. Uh, we may wish they died and went to hell. Uh, we may feel bitterness towards them. We may nurse grudges. Uh, we may have unresolved, unreconciled feelings towards someone. And Jesus is saying that's the same as murder because God looks at the heart. Anger is the root of murdering. The Lord says anger and murder merit equal punishment. Uh, he's saying you're in danger of judgment. You're in danger of the council. You're in danger of hellfire. So he's saying that what goes on in the inside of you is what God judges. And so he strips us all stark naked in terms of our self-righteousness and says, if you're angry with someone, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. He's saying, even if you don't do the killing, if your heart is full of anger and hate, you're a murderer. And he uses three illustrations to reveal this sin in verse 22. He has the, the evil and danger of anger. He says, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Uh, now, I admit there's a type of righteous anger, but that's not what Jesus means here. He's talking about selfish anger. You're, you're angry with someone. Something's happened. You're really mad. You're angry. And it's, it could be a slow burn. It can be a, a flaring kind of anger. But Jesus says, if you hold a grudge and bitterness against someone, when you hold anything, no matter how small against someone, you're as guilty as the person who takes a life and you deserve the same punishment. If you're angry with your brother, you're guilty before the court. The second illustration he used is the evil and danger of slander. He says, and whoever shall say to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And we were, I pointed out to you that some Bible versions have this word raka there. Uh, it's an interesting term. Those versions have it there because it's very difficult to translate. It's, it's an untranslated epitaph. Uh, it's a malicious term. Some have said it means brainless idiot. That's my personal favorite. Um, 
Uh, some have said it means worthless fellow or silly fool, empty head, blockhead, good for nothing. Uh, it was a verbal expression of slander against another person. Uh, there are several terms and gestures in our own language and culture that would fit with this kind of term. Uh, it may be a racial slur. It may be a gesture of some kind with a hand or a certain finger uh, that tells the person you're displeased with them and what you think of them. It, it may be a term which is degrading toward an individual based upon their presumed lack of intelligence. It's, it's all the same thing. Uh, to slander a creature made in God's image is to slander God himself and is equivalent to murdering that person. Uh, Jesus is saying that what you feel inside is enough to damn you to eternal hell as much as what you do on the outside. And that's what he means. The third illustration he gives in verse 22 is the evil and danger of condemning character. And it says, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Uh, we saw that the word translated fool is this word moras from which we get our English word moron. Uh, it was used in secular Greek literature uh, of someone who was stupid, dull, and obstinate. Uh, it's possible to use this term without incurring any guilt, uh, but if you are doing it as an epitaph of hatred, then it is a sin. Um, there is a time when we do people a favor uh, to say you're foolish. Uh, in fact, it's our obligation to warn those who are clearly in opposition to God's will that they're living foolishly. Uh, in terms of unbelievers, we're certainly not wrong to show them what the Scripture says about those who reject God. Jesus' prohibition here is against slanderously calling a person a fool out of anger and hatred, not about warning those who reject God and refuse to repent of their sin that they are behaving like a fool. Uh, but when someone lashes out another person and calls them a fool as an expression of malicious animosity, it's tantamount to murder and makes that person guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And then he, he uses a word there, the word kehenna, right here, kehenna, uh, which is translated hell. It was the most common term that the Jews used to refer to hell. This word has a fascinating history. Gehenna is used 12 times in Scripture, and 11 times of those, of those times, it was Jesus who used the term in his teaching. Uh, James also uses the term in his discussion of the tongue. Uh, it is the Greek-sized word of the Hebrew Gehenna, Gehenna uh, which literally means the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, when I say it's a Greek-sized word, uh, what I mean is that the Greeks just took the Hebrew word and created their own word, uh, which sounds quite similar. It's kind of like our English word modern, uh, which in Spanish is the word moderno. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, the Greeks did that with this word. Gehenna uh, became Gehenna. Uh, the, the valley is uh, of Gehenna, of, of Ginnom, uh, of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom. Uh, is located on the southwest side of Jerusalem. It was a notorious place. It was the place where Ahaz had introduced the worship of the heathen god Molech, to whom little children were burned as sacrifices in the fire. 
Second uh, Chronicles 28.3 tells us about it. It says, He burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Later on in 2 Kings 23.10 tells us that the righteous king Josiah defiled Topheth, that means the place of burning, uh, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. Uh, so, and then Jeremiah tells us that God cursed that valley and called it the valley of slaughter. Uh, so because of what had gone on in that valley with the sacrifice of children to false gods, Josiah banned the use of the valley of Hinnom for any honorable pur purpose. And so that valley became a trash dump where all of the refuge and garbage of Jerusalem was dumped and burned. When an animal died, its carcass was thrown into the valley to be burned. So there were maggots and, and rats and carrion birds and other vermin that would eat the carcasses and garbage that wasn't yet burned. And all of the spoiled and rotten garbage of any kind was dumped into the valley. And so in order to prevent those dead animal, animal carcasses and other garbage from causing pestilence and disease, there were constant fires burning there to consume all of the corruption and rottenness in the valley. And those fires went on constantly, day and night, with a horrible stench as all the rotting refuse and garbage of the city was burned. And there was this pail of, of thick smoke that lay over the valley at all times. So it was a terrible, filthy place of constant fires and burning. And over time, the Jews came to use the name of that valley as a metaphor for hell. Uh, so when Jesus referred to Gehenna, or hell, uh, what he was saying is it is an eternal, unending fire in an accursed place where the rubbish of humanity will burn and be tormented forever and ever. Uh, in Mark 9:48, Jesus said hell was a place where the worm never dies. He wasn't saying that the maggots in the valley of Hinnom never died from the fires, but rather he was speaking metaphorically of the fact that nothing dies in hell. Those who go there are there forever. They are not consumed. They are not annihilated. They are there for all of eternity in unending torment. It's a very vivid language. So Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, became identified in the people's minds as a filthy, vile, accursed place where useless and evil things were destroyed. And Jesus used it as a vivid illustration of hell. Uh, and he says, if you're even angry, and if you ever say a malicious word to put down some person, or worse than that, if you ever curse them and spoke with malicious animosity against them, you are as guilty and as liable for eternal hell as a murderer is. And so Jesus attacks the sin of anger, the sin of slander, the sin of condemning someone's character, and with it he destroys the self-righteousness of all those who hurt him as well as us. His words have a second effect in verses 23 and 24. They affect not only our self-righteous view of ourselves, they also affect our worship of God. Worship is a, was a major issue for the scribes and Pharisees. Their whole life was worship. Uh, they were in the temple all the time, doing their thing, worshiping God, making sacrifices, carrying out the law. Their life was a circumscribed life of worship. But our Lord here condemns that very worship. 
Look at verse 23. It begins with the word, therefore. So it refers back to the point that, of Jesus' point that murder is an internal attitude, not simply an external act, and therefore God is concerned with how you feel about your brother, how you speak to your brother, whether or not you curse your brother. And since he is concerned with our internal attitude toward others, that makes it a higher priority, that takes a higher priority than our worship. He says in verse 23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, in other words, if, you're if you come here for worship and when you get there, you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. In other words, reconciliation comes before worship. That is a powerful point. I hope we can get this. Every Jew would understand this scene. The Jews knew the standard of worship. The idea of sacrifice for them was very obvious. If a man committed a sin, what happened? A breach came between himself and God. The relation was, relationship was disturbed. Uh, how was that remedied? It was to be remedied by a contrite and broken heart, and a man was to confess his sin, and he was to manifest repentance, contrition, and brokenness. And in order to outwardly manifest that inward feeling, he was to bring an animal as a sacrifice. You see, the animal wasn't the issue. Uh, it was the attitude. The at obedience in the heart is better than sacrifice. And the sacrifice is merely the outward symbol of a repentant, obedient heart. And so when the breach came and the man repented and in sorrow asked for forgiveness and set things right with God, he then brought a sacrifice. And so the picture Jesus is giving here is perhaps that of the Day of Atonement, when the Jews went to the temple with their sacrifices and gave it to the priest to sacrifice for his sin. He walked through the outer part of the courtyard, then into the inner part of the courtyard, and finally he got to the court of the priest, and he, but he had to stop there because he couldn't enter. Only the priest could go in there. And so he would take the sacrifice and give it to the priest, and then he would lay his hands on it to identify with it, and the priest then took it in and offered the sacrifice. So the man gets all the way in there, and he puts the thing in the hands of the priest, and he puts his hands on it to identify with it, and suddenly Jesus says, stop right there. Do you remember your brother who you offended? Your brother has something against you. Leave it right now. Don't bother with that sacrifice until you make things right with your brother. Settle the breach between man and man before you settle the breach between man and God. Now, this wasn't anything new. They knew this. That had always been God's standard. Look, let's look back at Isaiah 1 for a couple of minutes and look at this. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 11 of Isaiah 1, God said to Israel through Isaiah, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. God is saying, don't you dare come before me with your religion until you have made your life right with the poor and the oppressed and the orphans and the widows. In other words, deal with your neighbor and your brother and then deal with me. You see, it's a tremendous truth. Isaiah wasn't finished with that thing because it came up again over in chapter 58, verse 5. Chapter 58. Look at what God says there. Verse 5, is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing, bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, don't come to me with your phony fast that you claim is your expression of your worship and devotion to me until you have met the need of your brother. That's what Jesus is saying. This isn't anything new to them. They knew that the breach between a man and a man came before the breach between God and a man could rightfully be settled. Flip over to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, verses 9 to 11. For a moment, let's look at that. Here God says, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery? and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I have, behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. In other words, he's saying, Get out of here until you make right the relationships. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you Pharisees and scribes and, and ritualistic religionists come in with all of this worship paraphernalia, but I don't want any of it. Go away until you said everything right with your brother. That's what the Lord is saying. Now, the Lord brings us to a very interesting point here. Go back to... Matthew 5. Look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Stop there. Did you, did you see what he just said? 
it isn't that you're angry with him. It's that he's angry at you. You see how important it is that we have right relationships with others? Now, the implication here is that the one offering the offering the, uh, the, the sacrifice had caused the offering, had caused the anger or contributed to the anger of this other person. But you see, back in verse 22, he says that if you're angry, you're in danger of condemnation. So now in verse 23, he says, if someone's angry at you, I don't want your worship. Go away. Verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus shows his holiness by the fact that he's not even dealing with the anger of the one worshiping. That was dealt with in verse 22. He's now dealing with anger against the worshiper. You know, you may know that someone's upset with you. You may know that someone has something against you. You may not feel anger towards them. Uh, you might say, you know, I don't understand why they feel like they do. I don't feel anything about that. I don't have any animosity. I don't feel any anger. But if they do, Jesus says you better go and settle that. God doesn't want you angry, and God doesn't want anyone angry at you. Yes? Does that correctly correlate to 1 Corinthians 11, where we are told to judge the body correctly before we take communion? Yes. It directly connects. Now, I, I want to say something that you, some of you might think is harsh. But this is what Jesus is saying. If you come to Lakeside to worship the Lord and you're angry with someone, leave. Leave and stay away until you've made it right. If you come to Lakeside and because of something that happens, someone else is angry with you and you've never made it right, go and do your best to make it right. Don't come back until you've done that. Obviously, you can't change another person's heart or attitude, but your desire and effort should be to close the breach as much as possible from your side and to hold no anger yourself, even if the other person does. Regardless of who's responsible for the break in relationship, and often there's guilt on both sides, we should determine to make the reconciliation before we come to God in worship. Obviously, you can't change the heart of an unregenerate person, an unbeliever. Uh, and it is true that primarily Jesus is referring to your relationship with other believers here. He refers to that the individual as your brother. Uh, but as Paul told the Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18. And that includes unbelievers. You may not be able to resolve things with them because they aren't even on the same page with you spiritually. But you should try to make certain that the problem in your relationship isn't because of anything you have done that was sinful in any way. You know, I and all the elders want this church to be everything it can be. Uh, we have an elders retreat every year at which we discuss how we can make our church more of what it ought to be. And believe me, we're uh, 
we are all the time getting input from people about how they think our church could be improved. Uh, they tell us how they think we could improve the worship service, how we could improve the music, how we could improve our Sunday school classes, how we could improve this, that, and the other thing. Listen, if you want to enhance our worship, then everyone who has something against a brother should leave and come back when they've made it right. Then we'll see the power of the Spirit of God in our midst. Listen carefully to what I'm saying because I don't want to be misunderstood. People who discuss what we can do to improve our corporate worship often miss the point. The way to improve the meaningfulness of our worship is to get rid of the people who don't have any business being here because there's sin in their lives. There's something wrong in their relationships with others. You know, every Sunday, there are husbands and wives who come here who have bitterness between the two of them. And they try to worship God and doesn't, God doesn't want anything to do with it until they have restored their relationship with one another. There are people who come here in which there are feelings of simmering animosity and anger between various members of their family, all of whom claim to be believers, and yet they won't speak with one another because of some past offense. There are people who come every week who have had a disagreement with someone else in the church and it's never been resolved and they just avoid each other. They either go to the other service or they sit on the other side of the auditorium. But there's an unsettled bitterness between them and Jesus says, go away. You offer nothing to God. He is not interested in your worship. It is a sham. Settle the matter between you and your brother or sister and then come back and worship me. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Anytime there's animosity or sin of any sort in our heart, there cannot be integrity in our worship. 1 Samuel 15, 22 asks the question, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, obedience is far more important than religious acts of worship. You say, Bruce, how do I find out who the people are who are angry with me? Well, the implication of the text is that you know the person is angry with you. Obviously, there may be some people who are angry at you that you don't know about. You, you can't run around just asking everybody, are you angry at me? Uh, in fact, you shouldn't do that. Uh, that just makes people think you're weird. Um, but there are times when you know someone is angry with you, and you should try to reconcile with them and ask their forgiveness and try to make it right. Even then, they may not forgive you. Uh, but if, if that person, particularly if they're an unbeliever, then you've done the best that you can do, and there's nothing more that you can do. If that person is a believer, hopefully they will respond as they should and restore their relationship with you. And in either case, you're free to worship God. But if another believer uh, refuses to forgive you, and continues to hold something against you despite your efforts to resolve it. And if that person is another member of this church, you need to come to the elders 
and get us involved. That's a Matthew 18 church discipline issue. That person is in sin and needs to be confronted uh, for their refusal to forgive you and restore the relationship. If that other believer is not a part of this church but refuses to forgive you, you've done your best and you can feel free to return to worship. So Jesus' explanation about God's perspective on murder is rather devastating, isn't it? It affects our own self-righteousness and it affects our worship of him. I don't know if we'll have anybody at church next week. <laughs> Let's look at the third thing, the effect on our relationship with others. Now, Jesus has already introduced this in verses 23 and 24. But now he gives a specific example in verses 25 to 26. Uh, these verses are basically a commentary or an illustration of the previous two verses. And whereas in verses 23 and 24, Jesus commands reconciliation for the innocent as well as the guilty, here is the focus is strictly on the person who is guilty. He says, now, if, now that you've taken care of the worship part, and, you're, you're le and you've left, here's what you do. Now that you've left to get things right so you can worship God, he says, 21st, 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, what is he saying? The, the imagery that our Lord gives here is graphic. He's saying you'd better go and get it right with your brother. And he uses an illustration from the old legal method of dealing with debtors in Jewish society. The, the idea is that you're worshiping and you owe someone a debt. And it's reached the point at which you're actually being dragged into court over this debt. It's a very important matter. And the key to it is found in verse 25. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent." So you've left your offering at the altar. You've gone to the guy to whom you owe money. And you say, well, you know, I'm just, you don't say, well, I think I'll just wait until the time is right. When the right time comes along, and then I'll say something to him. No, he says, go now, immediately. Now is the time for reconciliation before the implication is that tomorrow may be too late. Uh, that's the implication. If you wait too long, you'll be cast into prison and you'll have to be stuck there without the possibility of ever paying back the debt and it'll be too late. He's saying, settle your case out of court. That's what he's saying there. Don't let this thing continue and continue until you're on your way to court because you'll lose and get thrown into prison. You'll never get out until every last penny is paid back. Now, under Roman law, if someone sued someone over a debt, the plaintiff, that is the person filing the lawsuit, was allowed to take the defendant with him to the court hearing. And while they were on the way, as Jesus says in verse 25, they were allowed to settle the matter. But if they didn't settle it before they got to court, then the matter could no longer be settled. It was had to be decided by the judge. And once the judges decided that the individual was guilty, he would then hand them, was then handed over to the court officer who would throw the person into debtor's prison where they remained until the debt was paid. Obviously, the person in prison can't repay the debt, uh, but perhaps some family members and friends might be willing to pony up 
the funds to repay the debt and get the person out. Uh, but for the average person, going to debtor's prison resulted in a very long stay in prison. So Jesus says, settle it out of court. Be reconciled before it's severe judgment and you can't reconcile it at all. Now, what does he mean here? Does he mean that the time will come when the person will die and you'll never be able to reconcile? Does he mean the time will come that God will chasten you and judge you and it'll be too late? Possibly both of those things. Uh, he doesn't really explain that. But what he does say is this, you can't worship me until your relationships are right. So hurry, hurry, hurry and make them right. Don't let them go to the place where there will be a civil judgment against you and someone loses in the end. The idea is simply don't let it get too far. Don't go, let it get to the place where God moves in with judgment. Act before then. Now, as we sum up what Jesus is saying, let's think about who he's talking to here. He's saying, you Pharisees and scribes who are depending on your own self-righteousness, just because you don't actually murder people, you think you're holy. Let me tell you something. If you're angry, if you've ever said a malicious word about somebody's character, if you've ever cursed anyone, you're like a murderer. If you've ever come to an altar to worship God and had something against your brother, you're in danger of judgment. You're such a hypocrite that you should leave that gift and run and make it right. And when you get into a conflict with someone, immediately, as fast as you can, resolve that issue because you too are in danger of hell. The fact that you don't murder is a little, just a little tip of the iceberg. You've got grudges that you never settled. You worship in hypocrisy. You curse. You malign. You're angry. And that same judgment comes upon you for that. Death and hell are what you deserve. That's what he's saying. And so Jesus speaks to their self-righteousness, to the issue of worship, and to the issue of relationships with others. He devastates their comfort, their confidence, their smugness of their self-righteousness by setting a standard so high that no one keeps it. Let me ask you a question. Here's the first one. Ask yourself, who is a murderer? Have you ever been angry? Have you ever called someone a slanderous name? Maybe your wife, your husband, your neighbor, another relative, a boss, someone under your, call someone a name under your breath? Have you ever cursed someone and wished they were dead? Have you ever come to church to worship while you had bitterness in your heart? We're such hypocrites, aren't we? Have you ever had a grudge with someone and you never settled it? Then you're the same as a murderer because you allowed conflict and bitterness and hatred and anger to enter into your heart. Second question, who deserves death and hell? You do, I do. We're all guilty of murder. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is what? Death. And so you say, how do we escape? I mean, if we're all murderers, and God says no murderer will inherit the kingdom, and we all deserve death and hell, then how do we escape? I mean, we're all worship we've all worshipped in hypocrisy. We've all been angry. We've all said malicious things. We've all thought a curse or said a curse. We've all been unreconciled to a brother. We've all done that. What are we going to do? And that's exactly what Jesus is after. 
He wants to drive them to the fact that they can't be righteous on their own, which will drive them to their knees at the foot of the cross to accept the imputed righteousness that only Jesus Christ can give. Everything that he says here is to drive them in frustration and inadequacy so that they come to him. He died our death. He paid the judgment price for us so that we could have righteousness. You deserve death. I deserve death. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. We're all murderers. And so all the Pharisees were, all the scribes were, and everyone is. And so Jesus went to the cross, died our death, suffered the agony we deserve, and offers us the gift of his own righteousness. That's the meaning of the gospel. And by the way, this is just one crime we've committed. There's a myriad more. So we're brought again to the fact that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But the righteousness that we desperately need comes as a gift from God. Paul tells us he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God had every reason to be angry. He has every reason in the world to be angry with us, doesn't he? God had every reason to righteously hate us and to hold us in contempt. He had every reason to curse us and he would be absolutely righteous in doing so. He had every reason to send us all to hell because we're murderers. But you know something? Even though we're just as spiritually filthy and foul as the worst mass murderers who've ever lived, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and the worst serial killers who've ever lived, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, he loves us. He forgives us. He pays our debt. And wonder of wonders, he has reconciled us to himself because he wants to have fellowship with us and wants us to live with him in his eternal kingdom. Isn't that incredible? Now listen carefully. If an absolutely holy God can so desire to be reconciled with vile murderers like us, can we find it in our heart to be reconciled to others? He, as our Lord, sets the pattern for us, his children. And that brings us to the end of our hour and the end of this particular section. Next week, we turn to the next favorite topic, adultery. <laughs> so, all right. Any comments or questions before we close? Yes, Jim. Does that include our anger and some of the folks? Absolutely. <laughs> it sure does. I was going to say, you see how the hatred that the Pharisees had toward Jesus eventually led to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It sure did. All right. Let's close with prayer. Uh, Terry, would you close us, please? Our Holy Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you, Father, that uh, we are the beneficiaries of your son's sacrifice on the cross. And therefore, the recipients of your forgiveness and uh, amazing grace and wonderful generosity. Thank you, Father, that uh, your son has taught us this lesson for Bruce today. We um, are greatly appreciative of not only the information we give, but the conviction in our hearts.